So right now we are in the middle of a series that we started a few weeks ago. This is our third week in the series, and the series is called Plot Lines. We call it uh, the stories which tell the story. And of course, the story is the story of Jesus Christ. It's the story of the gospel. And each week what we're doing is we're taking a journey through the Bible. We're going from Genesis to Revelation. And, uh, and what we're doing is we're hitting on these recurring themes that pop up over and over throughout the scriptures, through the whole of the Bible. Because as you read the Bible, again, you find that uh, there are these, you could call them subplots, you could call them plot lines, recurring themes that run like threads throughout the whole of the scriptures. And one of the reasons that's interesting, and not just interesting, but one of the reasons that's important is, uh, is this. Because the books that make up the Bible, as you know, 66 books that make up our Bible, and they were written over a long period of time, an extended period of time, by many different authors, many of whom never met, didn't know each other. Yet when you bring all these books together, what you find is that they form kind of like a, a mosaic, right? Here in our Bible, they come together, and, and it's something absolutely amazing. All these writings come together, and they tell one story, one grand story. And all these different writers writing in their own times, in their own places, in their own languages, by the inspiration of God, when you bring it all together, you find that it all fits perfectly. They come together and they tell one story, the story of the gospel, the story of God's work in history to save and redeem you and me. And so when we look at these subplots, these plot lines, these recurring themes, what we have here is really the fingerprints of God all over the Bible. This is evidence that this book is indeed inspired by God. It's the word of God planned out, scripted by him. And when you go through the Bible, like I said, and what we're doing is kind of singling out these stories, right, and highlighting one at a time, these subplots and plot lines. What you do when you, what you see when you do that is that these stories ultimately tell the story. They tell the story of the gospel, and each of these stories gives us the gospel in a little bit different light with a little bit different emphasis. It's kind of like turning the diamond, you know, turning the diamond under the light so that you can see every aspect of its brilliance and its beauty. So, so far in this series, we have studied the story of the lamb. That was the first week. Last week, we studied the story of the rock. And this week, we're going to be looking at the story of the river. Now, for me, uh, this is one of the most interesting and, uh, and exciting because of the implications it has for the world and also for us personally. So I hope that uh, you'll be stirred up by it as well. If you got your Bible, would you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Like I said, we're going to be journeying through the Bible today. Genesis chapter 2, and in Genesis 2, we're reading about the creation of the world and specifically reading about the creation of the man and the woman. And after uh, the man and the woman are created, this is what we read from verse 8. It says this, that the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made, up, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's what it says in verse 10. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. So there in the garden of Eden, the place where God dwelt with man, where man and God walked together in perfection before sin and death, before sickness and decay entered into human history, there in the garden, there was a river. 
And that river gave life because that's what rivers do. That's why most cities in the world are, are built along rivers, along fresh water, because uh, rivers give life. They give life to plants and trees. They give life to living creatures and even to us, of course. We need water to survive. And there are very few cities in the world, and especially in the ancient world, which were not built along rivers or, or near the sea. So there in the Garden of Eden, life began with God, two people, and a river. Now, fast forward with me through the Bible. We're going to kind of speed up here. What happens there, chapter 3 of Genesis, sin enters into the world. And with sin comes this curse of sin and death. Uh, I don't know if you have considered this, the statistics on death. They're quite staggering. 10 out of 10 people die. This is why they sell life insurance and it's expensive, right? So it's something that we all need to think about and grapple with. It's the reality of life in this world, in this fallen world where there's a curse. But God speaks into this situation and he says, I'm going to take care of this. I have a plan and I'm going to redeem this fallen world and I'm going to make right what has become wrong. I'm going to break this curse of sin and death and I'm going to restore things to the way that they were meant to be, the way that I intended them to be in creation. He said it's not going to be easy. In fact, the cost is going to be extremely high. But here's the good news. God says, the cost to make things right, to set things straight, it is extremely high, but I am going to pay that cost. I realize that I didn't create this problem, but I'm going to step in and fix it because ultimately I'm the only one who can. I'm the only one who can pay that price. And I want you to think about that in, in regard to your own life as well. Because this is the heart of God, friends. I mean, he didn't create the problem but he will be the one who fixes the problem. Even though it will come at great cost to him and great pain and great heartache. And I wonder if any of you have a situation that you could relate to uh, like that in your life. You know, you didn't create the problem. It affects you. You didn't create it. Somebody else did. But maybe you're the only one in the position to fix it. And um, it's going to require you to fall on the grenade. Now, why would you do that, some people might ask. You know, you're not the one who created that problem. That's somebody else's problem. But I would encourage you to consider the gospel. This is what it means to let the gospel affect your life, to affect your thinking. This is gospel thinking, to look at the heart of God, who said, you know what, even though I didn't create this mess, I am the only one who can fix it. And even though the price to me will be great, I'm going to step in and pay it because I love you and I'm committed to you no matter what you've done. That's gospel thinking. I encourage you to let the gospel affect your thinking in that way. So anyway, what does God do? He raises up a man, a man named Abraham. And from that man, he raises up a nation, Israel. And God's plan for this nation, Israel, is that through them, he is going to bring redemption and salvation to the world because through them will come the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Christ the Lord. And so God, he leads this nation and, and he ultimately gives them a plot of land so that they can finally have a country of their own. It's the land of Canaan. They call it the promised land. And it is indeed a good land, right? After spending years and years in the wilderness, they finally enter into a land full of lakes and rivers, mountains and valleys and springs. It's a, it's a glorious place. It's a good land. And eventually they establish a capital city, a holy city, right? On a mountain, and a mountain called Moriah. It says this in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem 
on Mount Moriah. Now a few weeks ago we talked about Mount Moriah. This is the place where Abraham was tested by God, where God told him, take your son, your only son whom you love and sacrifice him on this mountain that I will show you, Mount Moriah. And it was only when he got to that place, I mean, he was very confused. What is going on? What is God doing? But it's only when he got to that place and had his son there on the altar that God said, stop. And he said, there's a lamb and I want you to sacrifice the lamb as a substitute for your son. He says, uh, I want you to slay the lamb so that Isaac will live, so that the man will live. And that is a very poignant picture of the gospel. We talked about that in detail two weeks ago. But that was all on Mount Moriah. Now I want you to keep this picture of Mount Moriah in your mind. Mount Moriah is the name of the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. You've heard it's called a city on a hill, right? Uh, that's because it is. It's uh, very high up. Uh, Jerusalem sits on a, on a mountain, really. It's 2,400 feet high. And, you know, we have mountains higher than that, but that's significant over there because you're talking that in either direction you're dropping off huge distances. I mean, uh, you can say 20 miles away from Jerusalem is the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth. It's lower than Death Valley in California. And for this reason, you know, that Jerusalem is built on a mountain, you know, obviously there is no river that runs in the city of Jerusalem. It's one of the few ancient cities, like I mentioned before, it's one of the few ancient cities which is not built on a river. And historically, and even presently, water supply has always been a problem in Jerusalem for this reason. The only reason that the city was able to exist, especially in antiquity, was because on that hill, on Mount Moriah, where the old city is built, there are a number of freshwater springs that, that come out and give fresh water to the city. And that's because there are aquifers underneath the city. Now that's important later on, so just keep that in mind. But despite the fact that there's no river in the city of Jerusalem, we read this very obscure psalm. Psalm 46 verse 4 and check out what this says because it's it's interesting when you consider the topography of Jerusalem right it says this there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the most high so there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God now that's interesting which river is this talking about is this talking about Jerusalem is this the city of God or is it a, a different city of God that we're talking about here because if it's talking about Jerusalem well there never has been and still is no river that flows in the city of God if we're talking about Jerusalem so what is this talking about well fast forward with me again about 150 years after that psalm, Psalm 46, was written. The people of Judah, they're the people who live in the area around Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, they were carried off to captivity in Babylon. Now these people, they were the God's people, right? They were chosen by God. They were called by God to be set apart from all the nations of the world. They were called to be different, to be special, to be set apart for God and his purposes. They were called to be God's ambassadors on earth. They were called to create a society and live in such a way that they would be a light to the nations. They would be a, a place that people would be drawn to, to come and learn the ways of God. But instead of fulfilling that calling, as you know, um, they turned away from God in their hearts. And it was a continual problem that they had, actually. They continually broke faith with God. And, and here's what, what I want you to think about as, as we talk about this. Here's the thing. 
their hearts were far from God. This is what we see. Um, I'm going to be in Ezekiel if you want to turn there. Their hearts were far from God. They were living in sin and rebellion against God. But here's the thing. All the while, they never stopped going to church. Did you know that? They never stopped going to church. The people of Israel during this time they continued to go to the temple. They continued to make sacrifices. They continued to do all the religious rituals. But their hearts were so far from God. They weren't living for God at all. They, they didn't really have any regard for God whatsoever. In other words, we would call it they were just going through the motions religiously. Have you ever met somebody like that? Or how, or how about this? Have you ever been that person? Consider that. Have you ever been that person going to church, doing the stuff, going through the motions outwardly, but inwardly your heart is just so disconnected and you're so far from God? So what the Lord did is that he sent prophets to the people to speak to them and get their attention. The main one he sent, right, Jeremiah, you've heard his name, his job. He went to the people of Judah and called them to repentance and said, look, you need to turn back in your hearts to God. You're not living from, you're just going through the motions. But you know who listened to him? Nobody. You know, that's the thing about Jeremiah. I preached for 30-something years. And seemingly nobody listened. He called them to repentance, called them to turn back to God. But nobody was listening. So finally, here's what God did. He said, you know what? I'm going to remove my hand of protection from the people of Judah. And he allowed them to be overrun by the Babylonians. So the Babylonians came in, they attacked Jerusalem, they broke down the city walls, and ultimately they destroyed the temple. And they carried off almost all the people of Judah, and uh, they carried them off to Babylon where they were living in exile for a very long time. And it was while they were there in Babylon that God began speaking to them again through another prophet. And this prophet's name was Ezekiel. You can turn there with me if you want. I'm going to be starting out in Ezekiel chapter 10. Now, you know, Ezekiel is, uh, is probably the weirdest book in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever tried to read it. Uh, a lot of people start and try, but it's really kind of hard to uh, wrap your head around. And the reason for that is because Ezekiel is speaking about visions. That was how God spoke to him. He uh, gave him visions. So the book of Ezekiel is Ezekiel trying to explain these things that he's seen. And some of them are, are way out there, right? But, but one of the first visions that God gives Ezekiel is a vision of the past, right? They're in, they're in Babylon. He's speaking to them in Babylon and, and God gives Ezekiel a vision of the past. God takes him in this vision into the past to the temple before it was destroyed by the Babylonians and God opens Ezekiel's eyes to see what was happening in the spiritual realm in the temple before it was destroyed. And what he sees there in those chapters around chapter 10 he sees these people coming into the temple, making sacrifices, doing their religious duties, but that's all it is. It's just ritual. There's no heart in it. It's nothing else. And these people leave the temple and they continue living in sin and rebellion. They continue in idolatry and, and uh, following after other gods. And the spirit of the Lord, we read there, is just the spirit of the Lord is so grieved by this just so grieved that these people are coming and they're just doing their uh, religious stuff but there's no heart in it, there's no substance to it, it's nothing but tradition. And it says there that the Spirit of God is so grieved by this that the Shekinah glory, right, that's the presence of God, actually gets up and departs from the temple. And you have to understand this is, 
This is a, a very, very sad day in the life of Israel. Essentially, God is saying, you know what? In your worship, it doesn't matter if I'm here or not. You guys wouldn't notice either way. This is no longer even about me. So God says, I'll just leave. So God left. Can you imagine that? God left. God's spirit departed from the temple. And that's what we read in Ezekiel chapter 10. You read about how the, the glory of God departed from the temple. That's what the word Ichabod, if you've ever heard that, it means the glory has departed. And God's spirit rose up and he left the temple and, and departed from the temple. And actually, uh, Ezekiel gets to see in the spiritual vision, he sees God's spirit actually leave the temple and completely depart from the city of Jerusalem altogether. And here's the saddest part of the whole thing. Nobody noticed. Nobody noticed. The people just kept on going through the motions religiously. They kept on doing their rituals, not even noticing that God had removed himself from that place. And this is one of the most poignant pictures of what dead religion is. It's kind of like that guy who strolled into a church one Sunday morning. You know, he had heard about Jesus. He had started reading his Bible and, and he had decided to become a Christian. So that Sunday he went to a church that he had seen driving around town that week. And, and as he walked in, everybody turned and looked because you see this guy, he was a little rough around the edges. You know, everybody else was dressed, you know, suits and ties, dresses, skirts, and they, they looked nice, but not this guy. He was, he was rough looking, right? His clothes were uh, hardly new. Everybody was dressed up, suits and ties and all the rest, and, and they all looked at him. He, it was obvious that he didn't fit, and he sat through the service, but afterwards, one of the leaders of the church came up to him and said, son, uh, why did you come in here dressed like that? And he said, uh, you know, son, you need to really pray about this. You need to make yourself presentable when you come to church. And he said, I want you to go home and I want you to ask God what kind of clothes, what kind of attire is appropriate for you if you wanna to come to this church. So the man went home and, and the next Sunday he came back to church again and he looked basically the same, right? He was still unshaven, he was still wearing the same clothes and the church leader went up to him at the door and said, son, wait a second, didn't I tell you to go home and pray and ask God what kind of attire is appropriate at this church? And the man said, I did actually, I prayed and I asked God. The man said, and the you know, greeter guy said, well, so what did he tell you? And the man said, well, he said he didn't know. Well, what do you mean he didn't know? Of course, God knows what, what's appropriate here. And he said, no, he said he didn't know. I asked him, he said, no, he hasn't been there in a really long time, so he doesn't know what you guys wear. <laughs> and uh, you know how tragic that is when, when people are just going through the motions religiously whether God's there or not, right? Whether, whether they, you know, but God's glory and God's spirit aren't present. That was the case in Jerusalem at the time before the exile. And essentially what happened there is that God was telling them that he, through Ezekiel, he's telling them, here's why I allowed the temple to be destroyed. I allowed the temple to be destroyed because what God's saying is because I wanted your heart. He wanted a dynamic relationship with these people. All they wanted was ritualism. Their vision was too small. But God said, fine, here's what we're going to do. We'll get rid of the rituals so that I can get your attention focused back on relationship. You know, Abraham didn't have a temple. 
He didn't have rituals. He had a relationship. Moses, he didn't have a temple. He didn't have rituals. He had a relationship with the living God. And that's what God wanted to get across to these people as well. That ritual only has value if it has a relationship behind it. Ritual only has value if it has a relationship behind it. And the same is true of us. Rituals do indeed have value. The Bible gives us, Jesus gives us certain rituals to follow. They have value only in as much as there's a relationship behind them as the substance behind those rituals. You know, if you come to church and you take communion every week, but you aren't actually communing with God, which is the purpose of communion, right? Repenting of your sins and allowing the gospel to change your heart and change your mind as you reflect on what Jesus did for you on the cross. If that's not what you're doing when you're doing communion, then you're just eating a wafer and drinking some juice, right? If you get baptized every time there's a baptism, but you aren't actually dying to the old self and living the new life in Jesus Christ, then you're just getting wet. You see, what we learn from the scripture here is that there are indeed value in rituals, but only if there's a relationship behind the ritual as its substance. So it turned out, in the end, that being carried off into exile for the people of Judah was one of the best things that ever happened to them spiritually. I mean, it had great, profound effects on the people of Judah spiritually. In exile, these people repented and turned back to God, and they got serious about their faith. It was during this time that a young man named Daniel took a stand for the Lord against all odds, and it was during this time that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, you know what, put us in the fire. We don't care because we're taking a stand for our God. It was during that time in exile in Babylon that a new culture of seeking God came about amongst the Jews. It was while they were there in Babylon when they didn't have a temple that they started gathering together in what they called assemblies, which in Hebrew is called synagogue. That's where the whole culture of synagogues was formed, was in Babylon, in exile, because they didn't have a temple, so they gathered together and they would study the scriptures. It was a great time really of reshaping and recalibrating, recalculating, and although it was a time of great hardship and difficulty for the nation, it did result in the people turning their hearts back to God. And when the time came for the people of Judah to return to Jerusalem and rebuild, they came back a changed people spiritually, changed and different in a good way. Their hearts were on fire. They were seeking God. They were truly wanting to live for him. Whereas before they had been complacent and detached, just going through the motions religiously, they came back a different people. And what that reminds us, what the takeaway of that for you and me is this, that God is so much more concerned with our hearts than he is for our, with our comfort. God is so much more concerned with your heart than he is with your comfort. You know, generally, we tend to be pretty concerned with our comfort, but God is more concerned with your hearts. And if he needs to shake up the nest, if he needs to remove you from your comfort zone, make life difficult in order to get your attention, what we're seeing here in Ezekiel, he's willing to do that. He's willing to do that because he's way more concerned about your heart than he is about your comfort. And I know in my life personally, you know, the times uh, when I seek God the most, you know, for better or for worse, just to be honest, The times when I seek God the most are when I am faced with very difficult circumstances, with trials, with things that I'm like, this is over my head. I can't handle this. And so I will get on my knees and I'll pray most diligently at those times. 
And what I've seen in, in my life is that, that God has allowed a steady stream of things that have kept me on my knees, that have kept me fervently seeking him. And, and I, I believe on some level that that's because God knows me well enough to know that if everything in my life was you know, problem-free and smooth sailing, that my heart would have a tendency to drift away from him, that I wouldn't feel that immediate and desperate need to seek him uh, for wisdom moment to moment. Because God is more concerned with my heart and with your heart than he is with our comfort. But as the book of Ezekiel goes on, at the end of the book, Ezekiel gets another vision. And he gets a second vision of the temple, but this is a vision of a better day. That's what we have there in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. The people of Babylon, again, they're living in exile. They're, they're uh, back home in Jerusalem. The city's in ruins. The walls have been torn down. The temple's destroyed. The nation's hurting. But in order to give them hope, God gives Ezekiel another vision for the people. A vision of a better day. And that's in chapters 48, or 40 to 48. And, and we read about how God takes Ezekiel for these eight chapters on this second tour of the temple there in Jerusalem. The first vision was a vision of the past, but the second vision is a vision of the future. And in this vision, in the future vision of the temple, the temple's no longer in ruins. It's been rebuilt and restored, but more than just being restored, the temple is more glorious than ever before. And in chapter 43, we see an amazing thing happen. Ezekiel watches as the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, right, the presence of the Lord, returns once again to the restored temple. In chapter 10, it left, and then he tells them there's coming a day, a better day, when the temple will be rebuilt, and the glory of the Lord will descend again on the temple, just as it did in the days of Solomon. But here's the interesting part, and this is what we're going to be looking at in, in chapter 47. The temple that Ezekiel describes in this vision is, is a vision of a temple which has not yet been built. It's never been built. The, the Jews did return to Jerusalem. They did rebuild the temple, but the temple that they rebuilt was not one that matched the description given here in Ezekiel. It was a smaller temple, so much smaller that the people who had remembered the old temple that had been destroyed when they saw the rebuilt temple, they wept aloud. It was just the glory was so much less they felt. So this isn't the rebuilt temple that Ezekiel's describing here. He's, he's describing something which even to our day has never been built. Uh, and, and there's one really important difference that gives us the, that we can know for sure this has never been built. And this is found in Ezekiel chapter 47. So if you would please read along with me. Ezekiel chapter 47 verses 1 through 12. Then he, that's the Lord who's leading him on this tour, brought me back to the door, brought me back to the door of the temple. And there was water flowing from underneath the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters and the water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. 
Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. And he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river, there were many trees on one side and the other. And he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the river goes will live. There will be a great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed and everything will live where the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to El uh, En Eglaim. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine." So here in this vision of the future, we see that there's going to be this rebuilt temple and that the glory of God will come down in this temple just like in the days of Solomon. But here's the interesting thing. Like I said, historically this has never happened and here's why. It says that a river will flow in Jerusalem. Remember the psalm that we read earlier? There's a river that flows in the city of God and makes the people glad. It says that there will be a river that will flow in Jerusalem and the source of that river will be from where? From underneath the temple. It will start out as a trickle, it will gain momentum and it will become a river deep enough to swim in. And here's the part that's interesting to me, verses seven and eight. It says that along the banks of that river there will be abundant life. There will be trees and living things and in verse eight, maybe the most shocking part of all, it says this, that this river will begin to flow from the top of the hill in Jerusalem and it will flow into the eastern sea. That is the Dead Sea in, in, uh, in Israel. It will flow into the Dead Sea and the waters of this river of life will cause the Dead Sea to come back to life. Isn't that interesting? It's going to flow into the Dead Sea and the waters of this river are going to make the sea come alive. It will heal the water of the Dead Sea and there will be fish in the Dead Sea. People will fish there. Right now, there's nothing living at all in the Dead Sea. Not a single thing. It is the uh, saltiest lake on the earth, the most toxic place naturally on earth. Nothing can survive in those waters. Even if you ingest just a small amount of the water of the Dead Sea, there, you could get very sick and even die you have to be careful but here we're told that one day a river will flow from Jerusalem out of the ground under the temple where God's glory will reside and that water will heal the water of the Dead Sea and make it come alive after Ezekiel there was another man who prophesied there in Babylon to the same people as Zechariah and he prophesied a lot about the end times and the great day of the Lord when God will return to earth to intervene in history and in Zechariah chapter 14 Zechariah says that on the great day of the Lord when the Lord returns to the earth he will come to the Mount of Olives and there will be 
a great earthquake. Now that's interesting because Jerusalem does sit on some seismic fault lines, right? Zechariah goes on to say in this prophetic picture in, verse 14, in chapter 14, verse 8, he says, when the Lord comes, one of the results of this earthquake on the Mount of Olives will be, he says, on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea, and half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer and in winter. So I'm going to wrap this all together here. Here's how it looks. Remember I told you there's aquifers underneath the city of Jerusalem that spring, uh, you know, fresh water into the city? Well, here there, it tells us that in the last days, when Jesus returns to earth, there will be an earthquake that will cause the topography of Jerusalem to change so much that a new river will flow out of Mount Moriah, out of the city or where the old city sits in Jerusalem. Now fast forward with me one last time to Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible. In Revelation 21, it tells us that after all the cataclysmic events that come with the end times, when Jesus returns, he will defeat Satan, he will judge the nations, and the last thing that happens is that we see a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a picture of heaven. And this is what we read about that new Jerusalem in, in chapter 22, verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And that is the end of the story. You see, we started out in the garden with God, people, and a river. And where do we finish up? We finish up in a city with God, people, and a river, right? And this is the story of the river. The gospel is the story of this river of life, the, the promise that through Jesus Christ we can be reunited with the river of living water which flows from the presence of God and gives healing and abundant life to everything it touches. That river that was there in the Garden of Eden, the river which the psalmist dreamed about that one day would flow in Jerusalem, the river that Ezekiel prophesied about, the river that Zechariah saw in his vision, it will flow out of the Temple Mount that will bring life to the most toxic place on earth, the Dead Sea. That river will ultimately flow in the new Jerusalem from the presence of God and it will bring healing and life. And I don't know about you, but I want to experience that. I want that in my life. I want the toxic places of my life to be healed. I want the dead places of my heart to be brought to life. And here's the good news of the gospel, that you can experience that healing, you can experience that abundant life here and now through Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said. He said to the woman at the well, the first scripture we read today, Jesus told her, if you would only ask me, I would give you living water. And whoever drinks of that water will never thirst again because that water will become in you a fountain springing up to everlasting life. In John chapter 7, remember we talked about it last week, I'm going to talk about it again. Jesus was standing where? In Jerusalem for the feast of the tabernacles, standing in Jerusalem on that mountain, what mountain? Mount Moriah, standing on Mount Moriah and he said this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have declared, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
on that same mountain, Mount Moriah, Jesus would be crucified. And do you remember what happened when he died? It says in John chapter 19, verse four, that before they took Jesus down from the cross, a soldier came to make sure that he was actually dead and he pierced his side and out of his side flowed blood and water. There on Mount Moriah, the place that it's prophesied that the, the river of living water will flow from the presence of God to bring healing that will overcome the brokenness and death and the curse of sin. Jesus is pierced and blood and water flow from his side, from his body. There on Mount Moriah, Jesus declares, if anyone would put their faith in me according to the scriptures, they would be saved and redeemed, but not only that, God would actually dwell inside of them. And that living water that flows from the presence of God will flow inside of you. It will flow inside of you. That river of life, that river which flows in heaven will flow inside of you and it will bring healing to your brokenness. It will bring abundant life where there has been death. And maybe you're here today and you say, I want that. I know I do. I hope that you do. But maybe you say, you know what the thing is, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to experience that. I don't know how to get it in a greater way. I've put my faith in Jesus, but I want to experience that river of living water in a greater way. Well, here's what I would tell you. Do you remember Ezekiel's vision in chapter 47? There was one part we didn't talk about. We skipped over it, but it's significant. In ver from verses 2 to 6, Ezekiel goes on this walk, right? Remember, along the bank of the river. And, and the Lord asks him to get in the water, right? At first, he gets in ankle deep, right? He's splashing around. And then God asks him to go further down. And then he's up to his knees. And then God asks him to go further, go deeper, and he's up to his waist. And finally, God calls him all the way in where he's over his head and he's swimming and he's being taken downstream, swept with the current. And my question for you would be this, what about you? Where are you at in your walk with God? Are you just dipping your feet in the water? Are you just dipping your toes in? Are you just, uh, are you walking in up to your knees? Are you waist high? Are you halfway in? Or are you fully committed? Have you dove in head first, all in? I'll tell you this, God will take you as far into that river as you want to go. But if you're one who says, I want the living water in the way that Jesus talked about it, in the way the Bible describes it, I want God to enter my life and heal my brokenness and give me life where there's been death. I experience it somewhat, but I want to experience it more. Here's the word for you today. God is calling you to come deeper in. Maybe you're knee deep. God's calling you to go deeper. That's the only way that you will experience more of the power of the living water in your life is to follow God deeper into the river. The deeper you go into the river, the less control you have. Think about that, when you've waded out into rivers. The, the farther you go into the river, the deeper you get, the less control you have. When you're ankle deep, it's easy to run around and jump in and out if you want to, you know, and hop around. When you're knee deep, less so. When you're waist deep, the water starts to push you where it wants you to go. But once you're in over your head, then you're going where the river wants to take you. So let me ask you, in this analogy, where are you at? Let me also ask you, where do you desire to be? If you want to experience more of that living water in your life, the way that it happens is for you to follow the Lord out into deeper waters. Greater yielding of, of your life to what he's doing and what he wants to do through you and how he's wanting to use you for his purposes.
The story of the gospel is the story of the river. It's the story of the river of life which flows from the presence of God and brings life out of death and healing to brokenness. And my prayer for us, for myself and for you, is that we might experience the reality of that living water in Jesus Christ as we go from here today. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the living water that flows from your presence, that brings life and healing to the most toxic places, to places where there has been death. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has not yet believed in you according to the scriptures. Lord, would they trust you today for their salvation? Would they trust you today that you are their savior and would they make you the Lord of their life? And Lord, I pray that for those people they would experience the healing in life that comes from the river of living water flowing within them. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are here today who say, I want more. I want to experience it in a greater way. Lord, would you lead us deeper into the river and may we follow you, yielding ourselves to you completely until we're in over our heads. Lord, thank you that you are good and faithful and there's no better place to be than to be in over our heads with you. So once again today, we dedicate our lives to you and we ask, Lord, let this living water flow within us, bring healing, bring life, and may it flow out of us to others. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.